What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest is the one and only Steve Hall of Revive Stronger. Really excited about this episode because I've been following Steve for a long time and he is somebody in the industry who I really respect because him and I see eye to eye on a lot of things and we are on the same page with a lot of things. We are around the same age. We've had a very similar journey. We put out a similar message and we built a business around a similar concept put out as much free content as possible. And this guy is very, very big and very passionate about putting out free educational resources. And the thing I love most about his work is that he takes a lot of the science and a lot of the research and he puts it in a form that is actually applicable to our training, to our nutrition, and to our lifestyle so we can actually see better results. Because a lot of times, the research and the science can go right over our heads or it's just not practical for our lifestyles and for what we're trying to accomplish. So Steve does a great job at that. I believe I do a great job at that. So I think the combination of us two coming on a podcast turned out really good. I also like this episode and I'm excited for you guys to listen to it because he has a very, very inspiring and motivational story. Steve Hall was hit by a car and he had some serious health issues that actually uh, caused him to become very, very skinny, lose a lot of weight. And he kind of had every reason in the book to not only not try to change his body, to build muscle, to get bigger, to get stronger, to perform on a bodybuilding stage, but he had every reason as to why it's actually not possible and every reason why it would have seemed impossible. Yet, he still chased it, he still moved on, he still moved forward, he still sought out a career in this, and now he actually is a natural bodybuilder and he coaches others and he's put on a ton of muscle in the process. So it's a really cool story, it's really cool that that's what Revive Stronger, his brand name, came from. And I'm really excited for you guys to actually hear his story about how that happened. Um, so listening to him talk about the mental side of things, the hormonal side of things, the health detriment side of things, and how he overcame that is going to show you that really you have no excuse and there's no reason you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish. And that's something I took away from it and something I really respected about his journey. So really excited about this episode. You guys are going to learn a ton about training, nutrition, his story, online coaching, bodybuilding prep. Basically everything you can imagine about how to optimize your body while we also get to dig into his story a little bit. Guys, if you like this show, if you like Steve Hall, if you're a fan of mine or his, please do me a favor. Take a screenshot of the episode right now. Post it on your Instagram story and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Steve at ReviveStronger. I'll put both of those usernames in the description so you can see those. But tag us both. We want to see who's listening to the show and we want to spread this message and share this message with more and more people around the world so we can continue to help people get better results completely free. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to the episode with Steve Hall. All right, Steve Hall, man, I'm excited to have you on the show. Like I said before, um, I've been following your work for a long time, so I really respect what you do in the industry, especially as somebody who is really big on taking the literature, taking the science, and actually making it applicable to real-life scenarios. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into this. So for the listeners who do not know who Steve Hall is, can you give us your bio in kind of like a nutshell? Cool, yeah. It's an absolute honor to be on your podcast. It's always an honor to be invited on, especially when there's – kind of someone behind it who is doing a really good quality job, which I know you are. So um, that's extra good because then everyone listening, you're going to get more ears and they're going to enjoy it more. Uh, so yeah, about me, I guess in a nutshell, I am a content creator. So I have my own podcast where I kind of interview experts within the field, more specifically towards quite extreme kind of uh, body comp recomposition. So uh, competitors a lot of the time but also applies to people to just love it uh, a lot and then we also have articles on revivestronger.com so revivestronger.com is a content creator but also online coaching platform so there's me uh, there's pascal floor we're kind of the kind of co-owners of the company and then we have miguel blacoup who is a rising star in the industry in my opinion he is going to be he's incredibly smart already he's only going to get smarter uh, so very excited to have him on board and he does articles for us every month that we put out and these are kind of very kind of lengthy think greg nichols uh, stronger by science type of things and then we also have an intern on the team ryan solomon who's been doing a lot of work for us in the background so it's really cool that revive stronger all started as just me on my own and kind of doing a few online coaching bits and now it's like it's actually something real and we're really helping a lot of people and I'm able to bring people on the team who are going to make it bigger than I could ever make it so that's that and then alongside that I am a natural bodybuilder so I've competed in two seasons and I think that's 
six shows I've done uh, in my kind of competitive career so far. I'm fine at it. I'm not like the best. I'm not the worst. Um, I give it my all and I love it to, to death, uh, probably too much. And I, yeah, that, that, that I don't have a lot else to me. Um, I do a lot with natural bodybuilding, uh, help competitors. That's who we coach. I, that's how I make my living is coaching people. And I absolutely love it. And I dedicate myself to all my clients. And I think it's super important. Uh, we have started doing some seminars. So I do run some seminars with Revive Stronger. So we've had Renaissance Periodization, Mike Isratel, James Hoffman, Gabrielle Fondero all coming over this year. Uh, we should also be bringing over Cliff Wilson, who is in the natural bodybuilding scene. I'm sure you're aware of Cliff Cody, um, along with Valentin Tambosi later in the year. And so that's super exciting. And then we are actually even running a contest prep seminar uh, in Bath later this year with JPS. So guys over in, uh, they're quite big over in Australia, Jacob Skepis. Um, so yeah, lots of stuff going on and I absolutely love it. And it's a pleasure to be able to kind of communicate with so many great people and kind of be within the thick of it as well. Yeah, man, I, your passion and love for it shows just by just by that intro and showing how much you're doing. And I think it's cool too, because um, it's funny, actually, I can completely relate because my company started as like a blog and just me just trying to help people. And then somebody asked me, so I was a personal trainer. Somebody asked me to program for them. That was cross country that started a, a thought. And now we have a team, we have an intern. So very similar, man. And it feels really good. So I can, oh, amazing. I can completely relate um, across the pond, but same thing. And uh, you guys are doing big things. So I'm happy for you doing the passion shows. And I think one of the coolest things about that is that you started by saying I'm a content creator. And I find that most people who are very successful in the industry and who are successful coaches, they have a passion for just educating for free and they will do that before they do anything else. And I think that shows a lot about you. Um, and as you said, you have a ton of different things. So everybody listening, I highly encourage you to go check out all the um, platforms and things that he dropped because I'm tuning into all of them all the time and I'm somebody who does the same thing. So it says a lot that I go there for education as well. But I want to dive a little bit deeper into your personal story, um, why you titled it Revive Stronger. I heard you mention on a podcast and it was super inspiring and I want to dive into that because I never you know, you hear like brands and you're just kind of like, Oh, Nike, it's Nike. Like who knows what it means. And then you find out the story about Nike and the Greek God and everything like that. And you're like, Oh shit, there's this whole story behind it. Um, so I really like that about your name. So can you dive into like that, how it all started, how you got into bodybuilding and kind of give us the origin story of Steve Hall, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, I think, I don't know why I don't bring it up that much. I don't know if it's just I don't think it's that important and I'm focusing on larger things but I appreciate being asked about it because whenever I get asked about it people get inspired by it and it uplifts a lot of people that maybe aren't feeling that great in their current position and I guess that's because that's where it all came from so uh, to start at the beginning it was kind of like at university I was studying geography of business so I haven't done anything kind of I haven't got a degree in anything related to like personal training or anything like that uh, which is unfortunate, but it just wasn't my passion at the time. And it was kind of discovered whilst at university. I'd always been into kind of different things in terms of like, I used to do running clubs, I was doing rowing clubs, I was in the football team, I was weightlifting, not knowing what I was doing, probably a terrible form. And um, I had some kind of newbie gains, as it were. But I was kind of had my kind of, I was doing everything there could be because I just love like exercising, knackering myself out, and I had a passion for that. And it was whilst at university I really found my passion for bodybuilding because uh, unfortunately I was on one of these runs that I would do. I was, I was well into my running and I'd do this 10 kilometer run consistently. So much so that I had my own Garmin watch. I had the whole kind of heart rate monitor around me. And I was like, if I do something and you'll get this about me from uh, talking, I'm just like 100% in. I'm going to invest into it and do everything I can and beat myself into the ground almost to a point at which it was a bad thing to have done. Um, and so I was on this run. And I was on for an all-time PB. So I was like, I'm going to beat myself. I, I want to kind of beat myself. And this is why I actually love kind of bodybuilding because it's all about progressive overload and progressing in life, I think, is just so driving in many ways. So I was on for an all-time personal best, came to some traffic lights, they're flashing amber. I was like, screw it, let's go. And then I checked over my right shoulder and there was a van. And this is where I got hit by a van and unfortunately suffered quite a severe head injury. So I suffered... Um, fractured skull. I had scarring. I've still got scars on my elbow and on my back, um, which, yeah, they're there to this day. But the injury, they're really nothing. Uh, the head injury was much, much worse. So 
I remember this kind of year of recovery afterwards where everything was just out of sorts. I was going along kind of, I wasn't diagnosed depressed, but I certainly wasn't feeling the best. Um, I was in hospital for a month after the accident where they wouldn't release me because I just couldn't control electrolyte balance. So I was at the point of just incredibly low sodium levels, which if you have too low sodium levels, you can basically seizure. And if you have a seizure, you can pass away if you're not careful. So they were like, I couldn't do anything. I kind of brain fog all the time. I relate it to similar to being in contest prep in like the last stages or if anyone's done a really long diet, how you feel just like your brain just can't function. And that's how it felt in hospital. I, I can remember not even going to the toilet for days, not eating. And so I lost a lot of weight whilst in hospital. I already wasn't big. I was like 11 stone when I was going in and I came out like nine and a half stone. So I lost so much weight in just that kind of few week period, not eating anything, not really moving. And I came out of hospital like a kind of a broken man, or I was even a boy at this stage. I was only 20 years old and my final year in university. And I was never the most confident person, never the most outgoing. And it only put me further into my shell. And it really kind of made life a lot harder because as I came out, I was on diuretics, I was on a water restriction, so I was only allowed to drink 250 milliliters of water a day, which is like a couple of gulps, which is ridiculous because I'll down like a liter of water in the morning now, and I take that for granted. At the time, it was horrendous because it was just such a balance of if I kind of drank too much, then I could easily dilute my sodium in like levels, and I just I'd hold on to it like a camel, and I'd just be in a really bad position. So I was having blood tests like every week and taking all these kind of um, medication. And it, it was just a horrible time of life where I couldn't socialize. Obviously, alcohol is a big part of university being out. I didn't have the energy for it, let alone being able to drink the booze. I couldn't do any of that. So really put myself into a hole. And then I didn't want to run anymore. It was kind of like, you can imagine, you kind of have that. You don't want to run anymore. Yeah. I didn't want to be doing any of these other like clubs because I just I had no confidence in myself to be able to just go and do them. I had no confidence in my body and its ability to perform. So this is where I found weightlifting. And this is where I found kind of like, ah, let's find the gym. It's somewhere I can be isolated. I'm on my own. It's a very selfish sport, bodybuilding. And so it really helped me in that way because I had everything in control. So I kind of found weights. I also then started researching probably in the wrong areas, but some areas on nutrition, kind of finding the importance of protein, being in a surplus. I started eating a lot of food. I started training a lot and kind of garnering control of my body via nutrition and training was like, ugh, I, I, it was the nicest feeling ever. Feeling so out of control of my body and out of control of my life to be able to have those two elements and see my body change in a positive way was just unbelievable. It, the feeling was great. Unfortunately, I took it too far, did the old folk, the fat bulk, um, of which many people fall into. I thought I was doing a clean bulk because I was only eating like clean foods, but it doesn't work that way. As we know, if you're in a big surplus, you're in a big surplus, you're going to get fat. So I kind of gained a lot of weight in a short period of time, but I gained a lot of muscle as well as you would do because uh, I was training hard in the gym and obviously fueling it plenty. So then I started researching a bit more, finding out people like Alan Aragon, La McDonald, uh, finding body recomposition. And I literally just read his website like every single day, every article I could find. And it was just amazing information. I was like, wow, I can't believe like I've missed all of this flexible dieting, actually like fitting macros and, oh, I can make this into a lifestyle, progressive overload. And then I finding kind of 3DMJ, Eric Helms and learning from them. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is a minefield. Um, and then my physique just started moving in a much more positive direction. And this is where I was like, oh, I actually have a half decent physique now. And like, I, I kind of found natural bodybuilding at this stage through Matt Ogus and Eric Helms. And they kind of were on YouTube. And I was like, this is something I could, I could potentially do. And I was just getting more and more obsessed. I was getting more results. And at this time, I basically had finished at university. So I graduated. Uh, I was given the opportunity to take a gap year. But as I said, I do things and I'm not wasting my time. So I was just like, I'm just going to get it done. I managed to get a two one, so which is fine in the UK. Uh, came out and I kind of just picked up office jobs. But whilst I was doing them, I was just obsessed about bodybuilding. I was all in. Um, I was kind of doing runs to work, coming home, lifting weights, packing all my meals. I had like the six pack meal bag and taking that to work and everything. Um, so I was properly obsessed. To, again, 
too far. Um, I wasn't balanced at this point, but it was helping me take control of my life. And otherwise, I think I would have just been a bit of a depressed, soppy mess otherwise. <laughs> so kind of moved into these office jobs and I decided, you know what, I love personal training. I'm, it might not be a good income. My parents weren't particularly fond of me going down the personal training route. I did some kind of uh, classes on the weekend. I became qualified and an opportunity sprung up for me to become a one-on-one -on -one personal trainer at home. So I decided, right, I still work. I'm still living at home. There's no massive risks involved. Let's go and do this. So I started up as a one-on-one -on -one PT at my home gym. They kind of recognized me as someone who knew what they were doing in the gym. Um, so it was quite easy to get the role there, which is cool. At this time, I also decided, you know what, I'm going to give this natural bodybuilding thing a go. So I decided I'm going to start my contest prep. So I started my contest prep, started a one-on-one -on -one PT, which in hindsight is a bad mix because it's suddenly going from sitting on my ass at an office job to then dieting whilst one-on-one -on -one PTing. And I was just so tired whilst doing that job. It was a kind of a, a big shock to me. At this time, this is basically where I decided, you know what, I want to start developing a bit of an online business. I'd seen 3DMJ doing it. There was kind of younger kids in my gym who saw me training. They saw I was getting results, obviously losing fat through kind of competing. And they wanted coaching, but they didn't want kind of one-on-one -on -one PT. They wanted online coaching. So this is where I started developing an online business. And that's where I decided, right, let's go with a name. And this is where Revive Stronger came from. Um, all about kind of taking my body from a position of kind of ground zero, worse than it had ever been, um, really depressed, not happy, in a really bad position to all the way competing, taking it to stage, having striated glutes, and then even recovering after it. Um, that's what competing was for me. When I asked people like, what's your why for competing? Mine was literally just to prove to myself that I could take my body to such an extreme state and still be healthy afterwards. Because I was always having this shadow of the accident and the ill health following me. I was just like, I just need to get rid of this so I feel confident in life. So I competed and um, did pretty well and I had the bug from there. So yeah, it's a long story, but that's where Revive Stronger comes from. All about taking control of your body, no matter where you are, you can revive stronger and become in a better place and be in the best shape of your life if you use nutrition training and a lot of lifestyle to put yourself and your best foot forward. Man, I'm so happy we went into that. I'm glad that you shared that story because I think so many people are in positions where they use so many excuses or are afraid to dive into resistance, but you dove into resistance when you had every excuse in the book and every reason not to try hard and every reason why it would not potentially work, um, but you still made it happen. So I'm really happy that you did that. Um, questions for you is, what is your age now? And then what was that timeline? What did that timeline look like? One reason I'm curious is because very similar story to me, actually, I got injured but I had the opposite effect. I gained a bunch of weight and that's what led me into bodybuilding and doing a bunch of the wrong things, following Matt Ogus, Alan Aragon, 3DMJ, everybody, like literally your timeline of what you described. I was like, man, that was literally me after high school. Yeah. Um, but I want to know your timeline because I think people need to put that into perspective because this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Cool. So the accident happened when I was 20 years old and it took about uh, just over a year, maybe two years to have fully recovered from it. So initially I had, because basically the issue was uh, my hypothalamus was damaged and they think my pituitary gland was bruised. They don't exactly know, um, but some of the things that were effective were pituitary-based control. So I had initially the electrolytes were out of control and that took probably a year to recover. And then after that, I was then found to have had low testosterone. So then I was diagnosed uh, or medicated TRT but that only lasted, I was on TRT for like a month or two. And then my levels came back to baseline and I came off it because I wanted to compete in natural bodybuilding and I couldn't whilst taking that. So yeah, that, that was kind of the overall recovery time. So I was about 22 once I was like pretty recovered. And then I'm 29 this year. So uh, it's been a long time. Like when I go back to then and I'm like, oof, someone, someone I was asking about squat shoes recently. And I was like, so I had my, I got my Romelios when I was 22. They're now like seven years old. Wow. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. But it's good for, for people to hear that, man, because, you know, like that's a long period of time. And if people look at your physique right now, you have a big following on Instagram and they look for you and they look at your physique and they compare because we all compare and it's just part of it's It's unfortunate, but it, it's the reality. We're humans. I think people need to put that in perspective. I remember even seeing like Matt Ogus and I'm like, man, the dude is like so jacked. But if you look at his yeah. progress and consistency, it's like, oh shit, he's been 
tracking his macros and following a four to five day training split for the last however many years, like you need to be gradual with that stuff. And, and it isn't until now, I mean, I've been training for eight years now that I really feel like I've built like a really solid base and I'm like, okay, now it's starting to like all come to fruition, but it took a long time. So I'm glad that we kind of pointed that out. Um, curious, just be, this just kind of came up because you mentioned the TRT. What has kept you natural? Uh, I'm always curious about that. And I get that all asked to me um, all the time too, because it's at least in, in the United States, you just tell the doctor that you feel like a little moody and they'll prescribe you TRT. It's like, <laughs> it's pretty easy. So um, I'm just curious, what's kept you natural? What keeps you motivated in that? Knowing that it is the more difficult route. Cool. Yeah. I mean, if I have firsthand experienced what TRT can do, because I was literally like, I don't know, I couldn't look at a female and be attracted to them. I just had no interest there. I, I couldn't even grow a beard, things like this. Like I, I had nothing. Um, and actually I was prescribed it and it was found because I'd gynecomastia because my estrogen levels were so outweighing my, uh, my own testosterone levels. So I've seen it can get rid of gynecomastia. I've seen my libido was like stupid when I was on it. It was just actually uh, too, too, un like too uncontrollable. So I felt some of the benefits and like, you feel like a machine and it, it, the energy levels just it brought me from and i if people are ever feel like they're worried they have low testosterone levels i'm always like get it checked because it's not a life that kind of men should be living is like a really low testosterone life so i've always said if when i'm in my like late 40s or whatever i jump on trt in a heartbeat if it meant that i would be feeling better and obviously you could then say so steve like, why wouldn't you jump on steroids now? You'd feel like 10 times the man you are. And yeah, I mean, there is that. But I also have fallen in love with natural bodybuilding and the control that you can have via that route and kind of seeing people like Matt Ogus who have arguably some of the best physiques in the world who have stayed natural for so long. And I'm very excited to see how far can I take my body naturally and like get more and surpass what I think is my theoretical genetic limit i just find that fascinating and then the other reason is it is very complicated uh, i just literally watched someone's instagram story who said they were they were injecting what they thought was something else and they'd been like depressed and really lethargic for like a month because they'd actually been injecting the wrong thing and i was just like oh my gosh like i'm just it's just so complicated and you have to measure so many variables that i don't think many people consider like making sure you're taking supplements for like your liver and like uh, kidney health and then getting your bloods tested very regularly by a doctor who knows what they're looking at. If you do one thing wrong, I could just see that your health just really plummets. So yeah, it's, it's because I've fallen in love with the natural route and I, I want to stick to that. And then the just complications that it brings to the table. And it's not something I want to kind of dive into. That's kind of my reasons. Yeah. I've seen, uh, I've, I've listened to John Meadows talk about all the different things he's looking into constantly. And it just seems like so many variables that you have to control. Um, what are you doing currently? I got to imagine that you had to really dive into some of the research to make sure that your testosterone levels stayed healthy after going through that. Cause were you more susceptible to them plummeting since you had that accident compared to the just average individual? So I tried a lot of stuff before going on TRT to try and bring it up, like looking into all the natural kind of testosterone boosters and Cody, you know, better than anyone probably as well, that they just do not work. Nothing <laughs> that boosts your testosterone by like even small percentages, even like a hundred percent, that's not going to have any massive impact in terms of like actually a difference to what you're going to feel and the performance you're going to get from it. Um, afterwards, it was just a case of my doctor monitoring it um, a few times throughout the year. And then me being vigilant in terms of how do I feel? I know basically for me, a really easy indicator is my libido. As soon as that goes down, I know my testosterone has plummeted. Uh, it's a, just a really obvious sign for me. And I noticed as soon as I diet, it does plummet, plummet down. And I think I probably get it worse than other people. And I sustain low but normal levels most of the time. Uh, but it's what I tell a lot of people when something's out of your hands, why focus on it? Like I, I never focus on, Oh, my testosterone is really low. I focus on the fact that I need to nail every single other variable to get what I can out of what I'm going to get. And then I'll get what I get uh, rather than people handicap themselves. And they're like, Oh, like I've got this wrong with me. So maybe uh, my results won't be as good. And I'm like, don't think about that. 
just focus on doing everything you can and you'll get what you get. Uh, I think they even recently looked in the mass research review and they're talking about kind of mindset and how just having a mindset of like you have good genetics can end up leading to you having better results. It's like mindset is huge. So that's what I do anyway. Yeah, I think it's fine. There was a placebo study, I want to say with two groups and one group actually wasn't taking steroids and they actually saw significant difference um, or maybe it wasn't statistically significant, but there was a difference, right? And, and I think that yeah. just goes to show placebo is so true. And there's a good book called uh, The Placebo Effect that talks about that with like chemotherapy and people getting through cancer. And it's just amazing what the mind can do. Um, so I wanted to kind of start diving into some of these topics because I had a lot of things that I wanted to cover with you. One of them being uh, periodization inside of training. Um, and we can touch on nutritional periodization as well, but you and Mike Israel talk quite a bit about this on your podcast, just periodizing a bodybuilder's training over the year, over the months. And there's kind of not necessarily camps, but there are people, even successful people in the bodybuilding space that actually don't even periodize whatsoever. And they don't even think you need to. Um, I don't know if that's because they're doing more of a DUP and it's just, they have like strength days and high rep days to kind of just conjugate style throughout the entire year, or they just literally don't care about it. And they just see progress, don't know if it's drugs, whatever it may be. Um, and then there's people like you guys who are very specific on having different phases and blocks. Um, I just want to kind of dive into that in, in what differences you see with yourself and with clients when you do periodize versus not when the goal is specifically hypertrophy. Cool. So yeah, I think you're completely right. There are people who seemingly just go into the gym and lift and they don't really have a plan. I think most people periodize and they don't necessarily know it if they're having, if they're even doing like a micro cycle and they have a, a split and then they're taking rest days and then maybe every now and then they take a week off. It's kind of like, well, you're kind of periodizing without even knowing it. And for bodybuilding, it's absolutely true. Uh, there is no strong evidence to suggest that periodization is even necessary, um, maybe beneficial. But I find, have found that by having a structured approach, more than anything, has just given so much more drive towards a goal. So if I give a client like, okay, we've got three back-to-back -back hypertrophy mesocycles, then we're going to go through a low-volume strength phase, and then we're going to go back into hypertrophy, they're like, right. For these three mesocycles of hypertrophy, I know I've got like this, this four months that I'm going to be gaining muscle and size for. I'm going to go all in. When I find people who just kind of, they just kind of don't really push like any direction. They just have, like, go through the motions. And they don't see kind of any direction in their results. And I just found by having this structure and plan long term, it just, people were just on it. They didn't kind of just go through the motions. They actually then saw results. And I definitely found that for myself. And I think... There are people who can get away without it and quite often there may be, maybe you can say it's genetic that come into role or uh, potentially they are taking kind of assistance outside or they're just luckily kind of doing the right things without even realizing it. But for me, without periodization, I, I would just be hitting my head against a kind of a brick wall. When I was doing kind of those strength and hypertrophy days, I just found myself, okay, on the strength days. I was kind of tired from my volume work from hypertrophy. And then when I went into my hypertrophy days, I was always just like a bit fatigued from doing all the strength stuff. So I was kind of doing a little bit of impetus for both and not enough of a kind of total stress to see an adaptation towards either one of my specific goals. So I was just hitting my head against a brick wall because these were kind of slightly opposing. And so I needed to go all in and specify, was I going to do kind of hypertrophy or was I going to do strength? And then by doing that, I just saw more kind of uh, directed results because I was kind of giving the right impetus towards the one thing. And I found a lot of people that come for online coaching are very, very kind of interested in this and they like the structured approach and potentially they also have kind of tried doing things and it just hasn't worked and they need someone who knows kind of the principles and can put it into a structured program. And I think the people who maybe don't need the coaching are the ones who just get results because they're just luckily fortunate enough just to keep pushing forward and like I said they land on their feet just despite what they do maybe not because of what they're doing so that's kind of the difference I've seen at least hey guys I want to take a brief moment to remind you about the boom boom elite our membership site this is literally the perfect place for you the reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker you are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. 
And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs that actually work and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go inside of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com slash elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. That's actually a really good point. I never thought about that, but just adherence in general and just effort, right? Like um, knowing that you're doing something for an extended period of time is much more motivating than just I'm doing this forever. <laughs> it just it just keeps going and going and going. So I like that, man. Um, and I see a lot of people, and you probably see this too, where it just seems like they're doing like 15 to 25 reps, like on everything all the time. And this is kind of like old school, but, um, I see that a lot too. And I don't see a lot of people implementing low volume phases, um, inside of bodybuilding or hypertrophy focused. Can you just go over the importance of that? And then maybe how often you do that? Cause I think, um, at least in my opinion and like what I've uh, read from like obviously Eric Helms and the pyramids and stuff is like, you know, two thirds of your volume should probably be in the quote unquote hypertrophy rep range, which we know is kind of mythical, but just in general, that higher rep zone. Um, how often is that kind of how you fall? Like two thirds of your program is still there, but you split it up like every third month is a low volume. How do you, how do you do that? And how do you find it best utilized? So, yeah, I think within a macro cycle or like a hypertrophy macro cycle, maybe 20% is within the kind of strength repetition zone where it's, you're focusing on maybe four to six repetitions with some kind of in the 10 reps potentially where you are just looking to mostly push strength and mostly just maintain uh, volume levels. And we're seeing this come out more with James Krieger, who's been kind of going through these uh, specialization phases and he's very much kind of systematically pushing volume and then pulling back volume. And it's uh, related to, and I first heard from Mike Isretel within uh, I think it was the scientific principles of strength training, adaptive resistance. So we all know this kind of adaptive resistance with like even down to, okay, your skin, we lift without gloves and we lift barbells. We get kind of an accumulation of hard skin. We get the calluses on our fingers because it's kind of adapting and resisting against the barbell. So we don't ever get like the scrapes anymore. And we know it with dieting, we see kind of adaptive thermogenesis our energy levels plummet, our diet fatigue escalates, we get really hungry. And so we kind of have these diet breaks and these periods of time where we maintain to try and kind of see that all kind of dissipate. So then we can push again and lose fat successfully. And this is essentially very similar to what a kind of maintenance period with training, a lower volume period is that after a while, we don't get as good pumps in the gym. We kind of don't see the training response we want. We kind of feel kind of achy and tired. Um, there's kind of some mechanistic data in terms of AMP kinase increases, mTOR decreases, which is basically uh, not a very favorable environment for anabolism. We also just get demotivated after training with high volume for so long. And we basically hit a bit of a wall in terms of how much volume we can do. And volume is super important for hypertrophy. As we know, it's kind of the key driver, assuming sufficient intensity. So we get to a position where 
it doesn't really make sense to keep pushing that direction and we kind of find we're stale in terms of like our body just isn't responsive to this anymore because it's getting resistance from adaptations because the the body is pushing against it so by taking a lower volume period we see positive kind of a reduction in fatigue in terms of amp kinase will drop kind of mTOR will be in a more favorable position and also as we push higher and higher volumes we see a bit of a transition towards slower twitch muscle fiber types and that's not favorable because these aren't the kind of ones that hypertrophy the most so by going through a higher intensity lower volume period we can transition more towards the faster twitch muscle fibers we give our body a bit of a break so we come a bit more motivated as well mentally and fresh so just by taking maybe a month a mesocycle of kind of lower volume strength training we put our body in a much better position to come out and start benefiting from higher volumes again much in the same way if you dieted for three months went through a month of just maintenance you come out feeling so much more fresh you'd lose weight on kind of calories that maybe you were stalling out beforehand because your metabolism would have recovered somewhat. So uh, that's kind of the principle behind it. And I think they're underplayed, um, even for myself. Uh, I recently had a consultation with Jared Feather, who is kind of in close cahoots with Mike Isretel, obviously. And I told him what I'd been doing the past year. And he was like, so you haven't gone through a true low volume phase for like the, the last year? And I was like, no, I've kind of been taking active recovery periods with holidays and deloads and then like one week maintenance. He's like, yeah, I think you probably should have. And one of the big reasons he brought it up was um, overuse injuries. A lot of people don't take that into consideration when we're pounding high volumes all the time. Our body just some point may well break. And so longevity for hypertrophy is super important consistency and being injured doesn't play towards that. So I think people really don't utilize these lower volume periods sufficiently. And uh, I actually renamed them primer phases because I suggest they prime you for muscle growth and well, fat loss in future if you're going to go through maintenance at that period of time as well. So yeah, I, that's the way I use them. And that's why I think they're beneficial. I think that's perfect explanation, man. I like the, uh, the primer phase. I think that's, it's almost like, uh, it's just, I don't want to say like a sexy term, but it just makes, it makes you more favorable to be like, okay, like I'll do this for a while. Cause most yeah. bodybuilders and I mean, I'm guilty to it. I love hypertrophy training. I love getting a pump. I love that style more so than I love staying in the lower rep zone. Um, but that's a great explanation. And, and you're basically saying every three to four months, maybe, but it's more focused on biofeedback. Like how is your progress going? How is your physio physiology looking? And then we can kind of assess based on that. Absolutely. So I think on average, that's a great recommendation as like a rule of thumb every three to four months or three to four mesocycles. Someone newer to lifting can probably find they can just keep adapting and growing for a lot longer. Someone kind of stronger, uh, more advanced might find that they adapt way quicker um, and they get beat up way quicker from the higher volumes and have to cycle them in more frequently. But as a rule of thumb, I think three to four mesocycles of higher volume with one mesocycle of lower is a great recommendation. So you, so we've touched on volume like eight times already within this little thing. And I want to dive into that because one of the things I really wanted to pick your brain on is just what your thoughts are on all the volume research. It was like, you know, way back you know, 10 sets per week, I think was like a good recommendation. And then the study came out as 15 and then it was 20 and now it's 30 and then it's 40. And it's just like, okay, there is no, it's just infinite. Like everything shows just the more volume, the better. Um, and I think that in my opinion, it's hard because there's a lot of, we have a lot of listeners and clients who also listen to other people who talk about, um, you don't need high volumes. And I don't know if that's an old school state of mind. Um, but they just kind of think like, you know, for a natural lifter and a stressed individual, lower volumes is better because you can recover faster, you'll gain more muscle, but you can't argue the literature. Like it's, it's science. <laughs> so I kind of go back and forth and I let people know, you know, like if you have a very high stress, high cortisol based lifestyle, higher volumes probably isn't going to work for you because you just can't recover from it. But I don't think that means low volumes are better. Um, but I want to get your opinion on how to scale all this, how to look at this research. How do you go about it? And what are your thoughts on all this research that just keeps coming out? Yeah, fantastic. Um, the research is horrible to be honest because it, it is showing that you need like more is better to a point um, and it's horrible because it kind of shows if you've got the time and the recovery capabilities yeah if you were to add another set in the following week potentially you're going to grow more muscle and that's horrible because that's more time within the gym and for some people uh, and it's kind of been postulated that hard gainers are these people that just 
their minimum effective to grow is already maybe like 15 sets. And then they can do up to like 50 sets. I'm probably over-exaggerating slightly, but these people who just say they're hard gainers, potentially it's because they're just doing all these low volume programs and they actually need to really up kind of the ante and do more. Um, but it's all going to be individual. Like you said, some people will need less, some people will need more. And, and as a requirement, what we're not seeing is necessarily like exponential growth. You add a set and you see kind of additive results. We're kind of seeing like a plateau at some point. So it's not like more is better forever. It's kind of like, yeah, there's a bit of a bell curve kind of, you want to meet within the middle of that bell curve if possible, but you'll still see fabulous results if you are doing minimum effective volume. So I think for the large majority of the population, if they're doing 10 to 15 sets, most of the time, they're going to see great growth. And that is probably a sustainable amount for most people. Whereas there might be some people like myself who I definitely have more of a requirement for higher volumes where I can be that obsessive bodybuilder who can like split his volume up very kind of judiciously across the week and do pretty damn high volumes and kind of go towards my maximum recoverable volume. But for a lot of lifters who are not advanced intermediates, they don't even need to get to that point. They can cycle between 10 to 15 sets for many months and be absolutely fine and not have to be too concerned about it. So for, in terms of the literature, yeah, I think it's, it is clear that volume is very important and we're kind of discovering maybe a cap. I think there are obviously some holes within it. And I think there's limitations in terms of kind of who's studied, how advanced are they, and also study length. A lot of them aren't that long. Um, but taking the literature as a whole is kind of showing an obvious direction. And I'm excited for more to come out. When I work with clients, I definitely work towards the lower uh, end and I ensure first of all a lot of people their form isn't that great their intensity isn't necessarily that great even when I'm looking at like four reps in reserve three reps in reserve that's still hard training and if someone thinks that's easy I'm a bit like hmm I'm not sure kind of how are you training then kind of it just raises some eyebrows for me so I kind of make sure they've got those foundational things right with a low amount of volume and then once they're ticking all those boxes they're recovering well then I might increase the volume but it's very much a case of as and when, not just add more for more sake, because you're absolutely right. A lot of people, especially more gen pop, they have stressful lives. They can't add more volume. It's actually going to be a detriment to them. They're going to see poorer performance because they can't recover from it. So they're actually better off and they'll see better gains long-term by having a lower training amount. Even if theoretically they could benefit from more, their environment means that they can't. So I think that's something important to take into account. I love that you mentioned the minimal effective dose because that's something that I always talk about too. It's just why go to level 10 if you can get progress from level five? Like let's slow down and just get what we can. Um, do you think inside, there's a couple of questions I have for you on that. Number one is, do you think inside these studies, it's actually somewhat similar to the life of somebody like you or I who we, and what I mean by that is the variables are controlled in our favor to optimally recover. Meaning like, this is what I do for a living. I have a gym in my garage. I can change my training or my work schedule or my food and supplements aren't an issue. Like I can literally do anything I need to make sure that like my recovery is optimal. So I can, cause I too can handle quite a lot of volume. And in a study they can control so much that they can probably make sure that these people can control it. So it's not always applicable to the general population. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think a lot of them are students most of the time who they're bringing in. And so, yeah, I think a student lifestyle is generally quite a bit less stressful than someone who's working like a, a stressful office job or like their CEO or something where, yeah, there's a lot of stress or they have a family. So yeah, I think generally it's students to get kind of used within studies. So that makes sense. I think it's important for people to hear that because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people on Instagram that look great and train really like balls to the wall all the time. And people need to remember that that's their life and they can control it. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to ask you, cause you brought up like how like reps in reserve, how close do you recommend people get to failure? Cause I think intensity is something that a lot of people, especially general population aren't actually familiar with how hard they're going. Um, and I was really excited. Like mass research review did, I think one month they came out with a study showing that um, you shouldn't go to failure. Like we should actually be in that like sub max zone and it's more beneficial because you can recover faster. And then the next month, Eric Helms reviewed one that said like basically people put their 10 rep max on a bar and they got like 20 reps with it. So people aren't going as hard as they think. And it's kind of like these two ends of the spectrum. Like um, what are your recommendations on how hard we should actually be going in the gym? Cool. So yeah, I think it's fantastic. And there is a, at least in the little niche I'm in, there's a little bit of like, there's people who hate against 
like leaving reps in reserve and they're like, nah, you must train to failure. You've got to reap all the rewards. Why would you leave gains on the table? That kind of attitude. And then there are more people like me who are a little bit more conservative, looking more at the data as a whole and kind of taking that into regard with training volumes and the fact that if you train to failure all the time, likelihood is it's going to see a sacrifice in volume. And then they will bring up the arguments of, but the data says kind of people don't know how hard they're really training. And I think training to failure or training kind of to the point at which you see a bit of form breakdown. Yeah, sure. You're, you're securing yourself that you're definitely training hard enough. However, the people I work with, at least the population I work with and the people who are interested in probably listening to this podcast, they know what hard training is. They're under like, they're not going to go into the gym and do a set of bicep curls and not having trained to like five reps in reserve, which is probably the limit at which you're seeing kind of effective reps as it were. Uh, so I find it very difficult when people make these arguments because for me, at least before I found kind of thinking RPE reps in reserve, staying away from failure, I was just pushing it to a limit all the time. And I was seeing nothing good coming out of that. I was just every time if I couldn't kind of progress on kind of my last session, I was just pushing everything to failure and I'd just see actually results kind of spiraling downwards. So it just shocks me when people make that argument for people who are intermediate, who have been training for many years that, oh, you, you can be training harder. I don't really understand that argument um, from my end at least. And so when we're talking about reps and reserve, I do kind of make sure, like I said, looking at clients form when they sign up, I'm also looking at their intensity. And so I'm making sure they're really got kind of understanding of kind of their lifting with intent. They're not just going through the motions and I can see maybe the repetition starts to slow down or kind of, I can see that they're really pushing hard within their facial expressions before they're stopping a, a kind of repetition. And the way I see it is, Every rep we get closer to failure from about five reps in reserve, there's probably a little bit more of a hypertrophic stimulus in terms of effective reps. So like five to four to three to one, there's each rep towards failure is probably just like a little bit more stimulative of hypertrophy. But when we consider fatigue, probably each repetition we get closer to failure is exponentially potentially more fatiguing. So like a three rep reserve versus a two for me, there's quite a big difference in terms of the amount of fatigue that produces for me. And that has implications for volume. So we come to a bit of a, like if this was kind of on a graph, we see kind of a, where these intersect, where there's lots of stimulus in terms of hypertrophy with some fatigue, but not like outrageous fatigue. And I, for me, that averages out around two reps in reserve where you're getting plenty of kind of volume. You're getting plenty of a hypertrophic stimulus from what you're doing, but not tons of fatigue coming in. And so that doesn't mean you have to train at two reps in reserve all the time. You could train, and I, for my kind of mesocycles, for my clients, start them at about three to four reps in reserve. And then each week we're adding reps, intensity, potentially sets, depending on recovery. And we're moving towards and accumulating each week towards failure. And for me, um, on some movements, I think failure is safe. On other movements, I would always kind of leave one rep in reserve. Um, depending on the level of advancement for me, I can normally kind of trust myself to take like a squat even to a naught reps in reserve. But for me, that means I can't, I've done all the clean reps I can do. If I was to do another rep, I might be able to get it done, but it would be kind of ugly. I'd kind of form would break down. I don't ever take anything unless it's maybe an isolation movement to like true failure where like my form breaks down or something like that. That's not something I like to see. So that's kind of where I stand in terms of reps in reserve. Uh, and I think it's a fair enough stance and uh, I, there are a lot of arguments again it, against it and I guess it goes a bit against kind of old school bodybuilding mentality but I think we've advanced since then. I think we're smarter lifters than we used to be. There's more evidence showing us directions in which we should train and we should take that and use that to our advantage and I think some people are and I think some people would benefit from it. I think you have to be uh, committed to the long haul. Like if you look at people like Dorian Yates who – badass dude and his method was cool to watch on youtube but look at him now right and ronnie coleman and i met ronnie coleman in vegas and he walked up with a cane and it's like it's unfortunate but those He's guys are, yeah people are beat down um and you don't see that pain right away like you have to it's going to be in 10 years so you have to commit to this like balanced opinion and i stand in the exact same place and i actually explain and focus on our um, reps and reserve very similar with my clients so i like the way you put that um very very good as we as we kind of talk about all this different science and literature like how do you 
take it and apply it? How do you understand the literature and make sure that you're using it effectively or explaining it effectively? Or like, what advice do you have to people? Because there's a lot of people listening who love reading the stuff on PubMed or even research reviews, which I highly recommend to people who aren't, I mean, to anybody really. I would suggest the research reviews over PubMed and things like that because it's actual scientists breaking it down for us. Um, but what do you recommend to people when they read this? Like how to like take this stuff with a grain of salt so they don't just go all in on what, what one study said? Perfect. Yeah, I think it's really important to clarify that, yeah, one study, I mean, you have to take the evidence as a whole um, and you can't go all in on one study because that can really screw you over because some studies, I mean, there's people say a study, there's a study for everything. There isn't, but there's studies that say a lot of strange things potentially. And I think it can be um, to your detriment to go in on one study. Uh, the way I think pulling back a layer and the way I started to learn actually was through textbooks. So it sounds really boring. It sounds really geeky, but textbooks are fantastic because they literally take all of the research and then they practically lay it out for you. So this is why like the muscle and strength pyramids, uh, the scientific principles of strength training, these books now, I wish they were out when I started training because I was using like the old school, like uh, Bom uh, what's his name, Bomper, um, Tudor Bomper and things like this. Um, their textbooks and like the practical, practical programming by Mark Ripito and Kil Gore. These were kind of where I was trying to decipher my training from. And these are more strength-based focused. So for those who are kind of into physique sports, now with the kind of muscle and strength pyramids, with the scientific principles of strength training, the RP diet, like these guys are putting out kind of these resources. They're taking the evidence as a whole, and then they're putting it into practical little tips for you to take away. They are absolutely amazing and then the only way i'd say that people can take that a step further then is potentially getting a coach uh, a lot of the people i coach are coaches uh which is was surprising to me because it makes me uh, i used to feel a lot of pressure and i used to get some anxiety about coaching coaches because i'm like what, what do i know more than them but you find you can almost teach any like something to anyone and sometimes people struggle to put principles and concepts into a program and that's something i have a really good skill set at doing and I found a lot of those coaches have learned a lot from just seeing it like, okay, this is your mesocycle. They kind of knew, they kind of had the tools to build one, but they didn't know how to build it correctly. And so then they saw all the principles laid out within a mesocycle that I'd drawn up and they're like, oh, now it all clicks. It's so simple. And I'm like, yeah, it can be. So I, I think, yeah, textbooks are a great place to start. And then learning from a coach, I think there's just so much value there. And then move forward from there into, like you said, the research reviews are fantastic again. We aren't researchers. Well, there might be some researchers listening, but I doubt it. As a coach, I'm a practitioner. I am not a skilled researcher. I don't know how to read research. I do read it sometimes, and sometimes it can be easy enough. Like some of this kind of stuff that we're into is probably easy enough, but some of it is very, very difficult. And when there's things like the mass research review available, there's RP+, there's James Krieger's Weightology. These resources, I mean, they're run by people who know what they're doing, and there's plenty of information to get into there. So I think they're fantastic. I love that. I think uh, similar with the coaches thing, it used to bug me out, but I coach a lot of coaches now too. And it's rewarding because then they pay it forward to their clients too, you know? And I think exactly. having, having an outside opinion, I mean, I have a coach. It just, it just helps having somebody else to do that for you. Um, one thing I want to point out too, is I think that I know for me, like Matador study is a good example. I read that study and then I listened to, Eric Helms, James Krieger, all these other people talk about it and you see them pick it apart in a way that I would not have been able to. And it makes you think completely differently of the study. Yeah, it's, it, it was kind of shown as well. If anyone watched the uh, debate, you probably saw it, Cody, between Lyle McDonald and Mike Isretel, uh, where, I mean, Lyle is a super intelligent guy, but he doesn't do research, whereas Mike does and Mike has done research. And so you can see some points of conflict where, Lyle didn't really understand why something had to be a certain way. And it's just because that's how researchers do it. And that's how research works, which is Mike's points, which is difficult to understand from someone who has never been in a research study or never done one. So I completely agree. Um, sometimes people have to respect their scope of practice and reading an abstract or a conclusion does not make you kind of able to have researched a topic to the nth degree and understand it fully. And sometimes we have to kind of, yeah, there's people above us who have a better knowledge. We can be coaches. We can then apply that to people. Uh, but yeah, maybe we should look towards other people. We shouldn't try and kind of do things that are out of our scope of practice. Yeah. I, as soon as I saw, um, 
on my little iTunes thing, those two people pop up in a <laughs> round table debate. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Uh, just I can't I, believe that happened. <laughs> I, I was actually surprised you did that. So well done. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, I want to, I know we're getting closer and closer on time and I could probably just keep talking about this stuff all day, but I want to touch on nutrition just for a little bit um, in, in a couple avenues. Um, the first thing is just kind of selfishly, I'm just curious of your thoughts on this. Um, Mike Rizzichel has talked a lot about like high carb massing. Um, low fat massing. And, and it's very similar to what a lot of people did in the nineties and the eighties and stuff like yeah. that. Um, I have found great results with that. And I think like if you can have your minimum amount of fat for hormonal function and then you can crank carbs up, it's going to fuel performance. I've felt really good that way. I've seen really good results. And I want to know if you use that um, and why you think that is uh, effective versus a more like balanced approach. If calories equated quote unquote are all are basically it's the same regardless, if that makes yeah. sense. So I'll cover that first point, first of all, why I think potentially the balance approach isn't necessarily as optimal. I, I hate that word, but um, let's use it in this context because I think it works. I think one of the big problems that happens when people just shoot for protein and calories and they have maybe a big calorie intake is that they get very tempted to eat foods that are very high in carbohydrates and fat. And these are the foods that are typically the least nutritious. They're the foods that are easiest to overeat on. They're the donuts, the cookies, the ice cream, the pizzas, which aren't bad. But when you overeat on those and you kind of don't respect any micronutrition, you can get yourself into a bit of a sticky situation. You can also easily overeat on those things. So if you meant to be in a, like a 300 calorie surplus, you could easily make that into a 600 calorie surplus by eating a tub of Ben and Jerry's at night, which wouldn't be overly difficult for a lot of people. So I think that's one of the reasons I think just inherently, I'm not overly happy with that approach. And then the other reasons I think are outlined, like you said, it's been a long time that people have tried this kind of higher carb approach, lower fat. And having had uh, kind of consultations and chats with Broderick Chavez about it, he's also been on the podcast twice, I think talking about high carbs and why it just makes sense. And he's a molecular biologist with a lot of background in this area. And I think he literally says like, for your essential fats, you could probably lick like a post-it note. It's like, you probably get enough fat from that. Like you, do, you don't need that much fat in your diet. Um, and then as like a safety precaution, it's kind of 0.3 per pound seems to be like the lower limit that people would probably want to go to. You could trial lower, see if your kind of libido is okay and see how you're doing. As long as you're getting in kind of the essential fatty acids, you're eating some omega-3, some salmons in your diet or something like that. There's nothing more that fats can do for you. Um, you can get your extra kind of vitamins, minerals from carbohydrates, from proteins. You don't need to have more fat. And then it looks towards, okay, so there's no point having more fat apart from for calories sake. But what about more carbohydrates? Well, more carbohydrates going to potentially fuel better recovery, more performance. Uh, when we're thinking about hypertrophy and volume, fueling recovery and performance is huge. So if you can have kind of top, top glycogen stores all the time, that's really positive. And then Broderick brings up the argument of, well, carbohydrates are the most insulinogenic, a more insulin kind of high environment from having higher carbohydrates, somewhat anabolic. Why do people inject insulin? Because it fucking makes people grow. <laughs> so why not try and max out the potential benefit from having a higher carbohydrates there? And then from anecdotally with myself, similar to you, like I've been doing it and I really enjoy it, first of all, and I've just found it to be a really successful approach. Um, and theoretically it makes sense. I really enjoy it. So I run with it. It can be quite inflexible at times, like when you're trying to shoot really low fat and you're going up for like 500, 600 grams of carbs. And so I do allow people and I allow myself some flexibility of, okay, when I need it, when I desire to have maybe some of those higher fat foods, like a pizza or something, sure, my fat intake can come up. I'll control my calorie intake. But for the most part, I think just from anecdote from seeing kind of the potential mechanistic benefits of having higher carbs and the fact that having more fat just doesn't necessarily play any more benefits. I've gone down that route and it seems to really work for a lot of people very well. I love it. Great explanation. Um, and I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's important for people to hear that because with the keto and all these different things coming out, I think it's almost like assuming that if you have, you know, like if your minimum intake is 50 grams of fat to fuel your perform or your hormonal and nervous system, so on and so forth, then a hundred must supercharge your testosterone. It's, it's like, it's not that way. Um, so I think that's very, very important for people to know. And I think it's important because a lot of people who are chasing fat loss assume they have to drop carbs, but you know, like in the, there's no like 
and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm sure you read the study too. Like there's no like hard evidence to say like higher carb diet during fat loss is better. But when they test all these bodybuilders, it showed all of them who performed better and got better uh, stage performance. They all had a higher carb diet and they maintained more muscle mass. Like that's a pretty strong correlation. Yeah, I had, uh, well, it hasn't come out yet. It might be out already, but I don't know. It depends when this is aired. But Andrew Chappelle, um, who headed that study, he I recently interviewed him, the, him on the podcast, and he was kind of talking about this. And um, in the UK, at least, I think there's a hashtag that's like carbs for condition. So obviously, there is a, there is a high carb kind of mentality over here. And yeah, I think it it's hard because carbohydrates, they aren't essential in terms of kind of nutrients fats and protein they're essential within our diet carbohydrates we can make them through gluconeogenesis we can have ketones sure we can survive without carbs but that doesn't mean that that's optimal for performance that doesn't mean that's optimal for therefore sustaining muscle mass so yes we can lose fat but when we're talking about populations who train very hard especially like competitors what's going to optimize their potential to maintain or grow muscle higher carbs seem to make sense from that kind of perspective yeah yeah um okay so uh we're, we're getting closer and closer last uh last nutrition question then i have a personality question for you um i want to get your thoughts on uh i'll just phrase it as hormones versus calories and the reason i say that is because there's definitely two camps and i know you see this too it's like all that matters is calories in versus calories out and then there's this other camp that gets pissed at those people that says well i have thyroid dysfunction so that's bullshit and i think it goes back and forth and i think I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably somewhere in the middle because hormones do matter, but calories in versus calories out matter too. But I just want to get your thoughts because you're in the um, space and you had a, a specific post and it was like almost like a little comic book. Uh, I can't remember what it was, if there were like people in an office space or if they were in a plane for some reason, I think. But you might know what I'm talking about, but you had a post about yeah. this. And so I just kind of want to give you, your, you to give us your thoughts in, on that whole entire debate. That's, it's good. I mean, it's interesting you remember that post because it was ages ago since I posted any memes like that. And apparently I did it wrong. But yeah, I think it was people shouting out like why someone's not losing fat and then someone shouted hormones and chucked them out the window or something like that. Yeah. So um, yeah, my opinion is, I don't think there is, actually my opinion isn't an opinion. I'd say my opinion's fact in that calories in versus out is the answer. But I think that misses so much in that hormones are going to impact that uh, massively. Like someone could um, have, like you said, a thyroid dysfunction that could really impact their calorie in versus calorie out argument. But if someone's in a calorie deficit, there is no way they're not losing weight. It's just that calorie deficit might be really hard to actually achieve. And the case of which kind of it comes to the people who really can't achieve it, it's quite rare that people have those metabolic conditions and people Google these things, they think they've got thyroid dysfunction, when in reality, they're just snacking too much, they're just being lazy. And this is why people like just shout calorie deficit in their face, because they're so frustrated, just in the same way when people are like, can I eat this? It's like, does it fit your macros? And then they came up with if it fits your macros, it's very similar to why people are now just shouting calorie deficit, because they're fed up with the people who are kind of just, they're just eating too much, or they're just being lazy. And there are many of those people, there's few people who actually have these hormonal problems that are really making fat loss very very difficult for them however it's too simple to say kind of it's just calories in versus like calories out and not explaining any of the detail behind it because there is a lot of things going on within that argument uh so that's kind of where i stand with it would you say that people's hormones or even just lifestyle choices can make their body have a lower uh calorie expenditure or a higher demand for a caloric deficit meaning their caloric deficit is way lower than what the calculator online told them. So they think they have a hormone issue when in reality they can't adhere to the diet that's needed to follow. Yeah. It's interesting because I work online. Sometimes I will have clients who will be on very low intakes. Actually, I'll give you an example. So I had someone come to me um, and we had a consultation and I remember saying to Pascal after this consultation, I was like, I'm really worried. I'm not going to be able to help this guy because from our conversation, he's doing everything right. He's in a calorie deficit, he's sustaining it, and he's not losing weight. And he's a big guy, he's got plenty of body fat. And I was like, Pascal, I don't know whether I'm actually gonna be able to help him. And I was like, I've taken him on, saying to him that I'm just gonna take him through what I take most clients through. And we're just gonna go through this process and hopefully it will work. And if it doesn't, then we'll try some other strategies. And I've had clients like that before. Normally it's females where they just need to be fed up a bit before, but 
they can kind of release some potential stress and then they can start dieting down again. Potentially they've just been dieting for way too long. They've seen that adaptive resistance I talked about before and they're just so diet fatigued. It's just way not worth pushing harder to try and get any fat loss. The calorie deficit has to be seemingly outrageously huge, even though it's not. It's just because they've seen so much kind of metabolic down regulation potentially. But with this guy who I'm talking about, he came on and within, he's actually been with me now three months and he's down over 20 pounds. And he lost in like the first week. And he then came to me after about three weeks. He was like, Steve, I think I probably wasn't adhering to my diet before. And I think just by having you as a coach and I'm adhering now, I think that's why I'm losing weight. And I was like, yeah, that's why. So I think there's people who have it in their head who literally think they're doing everything right. They're in a calorie deficit. And in reality, they might not be tracking their macros. They, they're snacking or they have, yeah, maybe they're just not moving very much and they don't realize it. And sometimes it just takes someone being like, right, let's adhere, let's kind of count these numbers, let's log them. And now you'll start losing weight. So I think there are some people that are really in that situation that you talked about where they really have seen this kind of adaptive resistance build up where they're super diet fatigued, where if they just push harder, their body pushes against them. Whereas there's just some people that are inherently just not adhering and they don't really realize it. I said something on a show one time. Um, I said, maintenance is your buy-in. And I think that's kind of like what I always try to tell people is if you just keep dieting and dieting and dieting and dieting, it's just not, it's not going to work. Um, no matter if you keep switching coaches, it's, it's regardless. Yeah. Like, you're, like I actually haven't heard the word diet fatigue in a long time, but I love that term because I think it's so true and it's so powerful. Um, but I don't want to take too much of your time, man. I really do appreciate you coming here. I have one last question for you. It's a personality question. Um, Normally, this flight would be to Japan, but since you're in UK, we'll say you're flying to me in Seattle, and you have two empty seats next to you. You have a long flight, and you can choose anybody to sit in those two seats, dead or alive, but they cannot be oh, friends wow. or family. <laughs> cannot be friends or family. Oh. Who's sitting with you? Yeah. This is a hard question. I'm not actually sure. Uh, I don't like flying, so I need someone who could like <laughs> take my attention off. Um, the first people that literally come to my own mind are Eric Helms and Mike Isretel. I think that seems so obvious for me to say, but these guys, not only are they two people I massively respect within the industry, they're both absolutely hilarious. So I would just love to have them both by my side and just like chat shop. And I think the flight, I think I'd be okay. <laughs> I think that would be a great flight, man. You'd learn a lot too. <laughs> yeah. Dude, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really do appreciate it. Where can everybody find all of your information so they can uh, follow your content as well? Cool. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a blast. So I think best place to head is probably revivestronger.com. That has the podcast, that has the articles, that has our coaching if they want to check that out. And then if they want to reach me personally, probably best on Instagram. Um, I'm at revivestronger there. People can send me a direct message if they want to, or they can just follow my stuff. I post like every day. So it'd be great to interact with lots of people. Perfect, man. Once again, thank you. (laughs) 